Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 259 of the podcast. It's August 9th, 2016. Today's episode is part two of a discussion I started with Steve Barra back in episode 256. Steve was one of the original 16 so-called Numi commandos that General Motors sent to go work with Toyota, to learn from Toyota in the 1980s, as was discussed in the outstanding book, Comeback, The Fall and Rise of the American Automobile Industry. Steve, uh, in his story, was featured in that book. So back in part one, we talked about his experience of getting started at NUMI, what he learned. Today, we're going to talk about what happened after his two years at NUMI, why he feared getting lost back at the regular old GM, what he did about that, what he's done to teach and spread lean in various industries over the past 30 years. And we'll also talk a little bit about his thoughts on the state of lean today here in 2016. So I hope you enjoy the episodes, uh, both parts. There are transcripts, if you're interested, on uh, both blog posts for the episodes, leanblog.org slash 256 or slash 259. Or, of course, you can find all episodes. Subscribe, learn more at leancast.org. So as, you know, Numi, I think it's fair to say very quickly, became a success story. Maybe you can summarize some of that a little bit. But, um, you know, the, the book, The Comeback, describes some of the confusion about the lack of a repatriation plan for yourself and the other Numi commandos. I mean, how, how would you describe what happened as, uh, you know, I mean, two years into the Numi experiment for you? For me personally, and I can, I can say this for all the rest of my, the, the, my partners uh, who are the commandos, that we had gone through a change each one of us, and a change in the way we felt a business needed to be run, the relationship management with each other, the relationship management with the team members, the relationship management with the union, and with our key executives. There was a, again, Toyota became the model for us to try to emulate somewhere else in General Motors. And the 16 of us would get together on a regular basis, usually once a month, to talk about what do we want to do with this experience when we finally have to be uh, to go back into the corporation? We were unanimous in our thinking that we all wanted to go back into one facility, whether that was one that needed change because it was not a strong performer, or a, a greenfield approach where we could build our own and have our own culture that based upon the, the values that Toyota had given us. Uh, as Every, and I think Roger Smith and Jim McDonald would come out on a regular basis and we would sit in the room with them and uh, obviously they would ask, you know, from a, a, a pulse check, how are we doing? And we all were so emphatic and positive about the experience that we would also ask the question that uh, when we were ready to go back into the corporation, we want to be able to be, have an impact upon General Motors. And unfortunately for the time that I was there, we could never get a uh, concurrence out of anybody or any uh, idea on what they wanted to do once our tours of duty were done. As, as time went on, uh, that started to demoralize us because we were worried about the fact that we were going to be sent back 
as individuals as opposed to a team. And as 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 my history showed, uh, I didn't finish my tour because I was concerned about for what I had heard that I didn't want my next 20 years in General Motors to be like the first 20 if I was not get this opportunity to use that good experience. Yeah. So at, at that point in time is when I decided to go off in a different career direction. What, I mean, what would you have anticipated if you were sent somewhere as a lone commando? I think I would have been swallowed up by the local culture. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, not everyone had a chance to be a general manager in a facility. Uh, you know, one of my very well-respected uh, team members out there, Larry Spiegel, uh, he was able to be a general manager at one of the facilities, and he, he was a, a zealot on uh, uh, the whole t- Toyota system, and mm-hmm. so uh, I believe that he was probably one of the few who were very successful in being able to uh, implement a lot of those concepts within the corporation. But that he it, it put him in the number one chair. Mm-hmm. He was the man, and I've always believed that if it starts at the top, right, and if it doesn't start there, and if it doesn't cascade down, and Larry would. Uh, in his career has always been one who would be the first one up front to talk about the value of what that uh, Toyota experience did for him. Yeah, as opposed to um, being sent in as the head of production control. You would have been swallowed up by the plant manager and the superintendent and all the, 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 I guess, the prevailing ways of doing things, right? That is correct. And and my experience in... Uh, because I didn't go back to General Motors after I left, but because I've been in so many corporations, both domestically and overseas, I've seen those companies that have been successful in implementing lean uh, only because the senior, it may not be the CEO or the CEO, but I can tell you that we, the companies that I worked with, we had the endorsement and support of those chairs, but the uh, mission was led by more of the executive vice president, senior vice president uh, from the supply chain or from the mm-hmm. operations side. Yeah. Now, if it's okay, I want to take a, a quick detour because, you know, you mentioned um, someone that I was very fortunate to, to work under and, and learn a lot from, and, and, and that was Larry Spiegel. Um, you know, in my own, um, you know, you had two years at NUMI, I had two years at General Motors, but in my first year at GM in an engine plant in, uh, in Michigan, we had the very traditional plant manager management structure, but somebody at powertrain headquarters had decided, you know, well, we're going to hire people from these Japanese suppliers and, and Nissan. And, you know, we, we were sent this group of like eight or nine people into the Livonia engine plant. And, you know, they uh, maybe someone at powertrain had thought that these were going to be some sort of commandos to come in and help change us. But I tell you, I mean, and and that wasn't just one person. That was a group of of people. They were completely swallowed up by the existing culture. Um, They were uh, quite literally um, exiled to like these mezzanine offices that were like the far corner of the factory from the plant manager's office. I mean, the message was was clear and uh, in many different ways, you know, that they were not welcome there. And that the existing plant management, you know, they, they didn't know why they were there. They didn't want them. And um, it was just it, w- it was frustrating. But then after about a year, 
um, some, some fairly major quality problems and, and productivity was terrible too. Um, Larry was brought in as the plant manager, as the man at the top, and, and that just set things uh, in a very different path uh, for the people working there in the future of that plant. Because like you said, he was, I mean, I think in a good way, uh, you know, a, a zealot about this new approach and leading differently. But um, you know, the, the last thing, I was, and I'll stop reminiscing, was, um, you know, I, I traded emails with Larry a couple of years ago. You know, I knew he was teaching at the University of Michigan. And, you know, and I asked him a question I'd never been able to ask before, basically that the plant superintendent, the number two, who was still there when Larry was brought in was just the traditional yell and scream and blame and, you know, just kind of old, I would say, you know, ogre of a manager. Uh, and, and I asked Larry, like, you, you know, you seemed really patient with him. Why? You know, why did you tolerate a lot of that behavior and the way he kept acting? And he said almost exactly what you said a few minutes ago. Like, well, when I went to NUMI, I had the chance to go through a change and he never had the benefit of that. And I, I thought that was really interesting. It made me a little bit, uh, you know, I, you know, made me, I guess, a little bit more understanding or forgiving of, uh, you know, why it was hard. Yeah, you know, for for the existing culture to change, but but Larry really, you know, uh, had had a huge influence on me. It's hard to uh, understate. So I, I'm I'm curious. You know, I've been babbling here. What do you have any reactions to any of that? No, I think I think that, that, that you're spot on. It's um, it, it comes down to because so many of our organizations have legacy practices, and then we have people who have been around for many many years, and, and maybe in some cases everything they've worked. For in the, has worked for them in the past, mm -hmm. but if, if all of a sudden I think that we're in a different world right now. It's like change is something that has to be more imminent as opposed to long-term planning. You know, it's like years ago, and people you always ask the question, you know, what is your five-year, seven-year, ten-year plan? Well, there's no such thing as that anymore because yeah. of the way that the business climate is both domestically and overseas, the influences are so strong, you've got to be able to do something in the next 24 months, 36 months. Anything beyond that, you're going to come in second, third, fourth, and you've got to be able to change. And now we have people who, who aren't accustomed to change. You know, change is, is something that is the most difficult thing for all of us to go through. Uh, and how do you do that? And you're right, whether it's uh, without the NUMI influence, without working with you, without working with Larry, uh, how do you get that individual? And I think that that's where mentoring comes in and coaching. And, and you know, I don't know if that the old adage about you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I don't totally subscribe to that to, to some people. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there might be a percentage of those that will never change their, their habits or their spots and the way they manage. But I think those that... Uh, as I talked about, you know, humility, as long as you can accept and open up your own kimono to understand what you're all about and where you have to change to go forward, uh, you, you can change people. Yeah. But they need mentoring and guidance. Yeah. And, and I don't know how much. Um, I'm, I'm sure Larry was was trying to coach that that number two. But, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure that was a, a big challenge for him. Um so you, as you were saying, uh, you, you chose to leave NUMI and to leave General Motors. Uh, what, what 
happened after that? I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of summarize for people what some of those next steps were, what sort of um, things you're able to accomplish with that experience, having gone through that change at NUMI. Uh, for me, I was recruited out because at that time, you know, Toyota's involvement and influence in this country was in the embryonic stage of their uh, history here. And what I was looking when I got recruited out, it was they, because I had now a newfound knowledge and new some new experience. And you know, maybe I thought people thought we had the secret sauce. And I think we probably did. We, we had something that no one else in this country did, and that was uh, a, a reason to be successful in understanding that we could carry that torch and that banner. When I got recruited out, I was involved in consulting, and it was great to be able to go into companies that had never had an opportunity to, to talk about. Of course, back then, 30 years ago, it wasn't uh, lean. It was more just about TPS, but then... We had to transition away from TPS because of all the people who were upset about Toyota coming into the country. <laughs> you know, we had to transition into the just-in-time world, the world-class manufacturing, manufacturing excellence, and uh, you know. And the one thing that in, in 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 Dr. Michael Hammer, who was instrumental in the BPR for business process reengineering, uh, we everyone coined the TPS environment as something new. But when you read the books and you dissected it, for the most part, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. But the one thing you can't do is, it's like any playbook. Playbook doesn't, isn't successful by itself. People have to pick it up and run according to what the playbook is all about. Mm. The hardest part, getting a discipline and accountability to what the newfound disciplines are to run your business. And... That was my challenge in consulting, to try to change people, change companies. And, and uh, the most gratifying one I had was when I worked three years with OfficeMax. I was brought in, and I was the only consultant brought in, and I was asked to help change the culture of OfficeMax. I spent three years full-time with these guys, establishing an internal consulting group. And to this day, uh, Office Max still has that same cadre of people. I think some of them have gone on to other assignments or left the company. But that same approach I had with Walgreens, I took to American Company, I took to Walgreens. And those that want it and have a thirst for it and are willing to invest in it, uh, it will change the way they run their business. Yeah. And, you know, as you were saying, it starts at the top. Were you getting to work with people who were at the top, whether that was a plant manager or a division president or a CEO? Everywhere that I went, I, that was part of what my uh, willingness to go in and help a company out was to work with a, a vice president level as the one who would be the sponsor. And there are so many times that I would sit in front of the senior vice president, executive vice president, the CEO, uh, the president of the company, uh, so they could hear and echo the same thoughts that I'm trying to expound upon through their organization. So I had to be sure because they had to endorse it. They had to subscribe to it. Otherwise, people are going to, once again, feel like it's another false start and we couldn't afford to have that. As you worked in other industries and um, especially as you know, you, you mentioned uh, you know, people in retailing, Wal Walgreens, um, Office Depot, you said? 
I worked with, well, uh, American Clip Company. I worked with West Bend Company. I worked with Bissell. I worked with, uh, of course, Harley-Davidson was not uh, retailing, but. But as, as you worked with these different areas, I mean, did, how, how much do people hit you with the whole, well, you know, well, we don't build cars here um, as an objection. How, how do you um, work people past that if they want to point out that, well, yeah, Harley's different and at Walgreens, you know, this is about health. It's not uh, about building cars. What, what kind of discussions did you have like that? And that's, that's, that is an excellent point because, again, I, I had the, the fortunate uh, career of being able to work in in various industries, and so to carry out uh, from one to another, right, not so much the product, but the challenges that I faced, and it, it became, was it a management issue, was it a process problem, whatever it was, but the first question you ask when you're going into any company is, what hurts? What are, what are you trying to resolve by having, whether it's a consultant or internally, that your KPIs don't uh, measure up to what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I found that invariably, it, they would whether it's customers, it could be customer service, it could be a quality issue, it could be an absenteeism issue with, with people that then corresponded into other kind of problems within the manufacturing sector. But you're right, uh, you know, Walgreens doesn't make a thing. Wal Walgreens, a $72 billion company, and all they do is have warehouses all over the country and, it's, and their shelves are full of things. The mm -hmm. problem is that they were facing was, I, I can't keep product on my shelves. Mm. And so when you went, when I went throughout the, because uh, I had to establish a consulting team uh, within Walgreens at each one of the DCs, and at the time we had like 32 of them, uh, it was to train everybody within each one of the DCs. And then I had a few people that, at a corporate office who would accompany me on each one of those trips to where we'd give the, the training. And every manager was involved in that. And it was, it was endorsed and supported by the general manager of each one of the DCs. So uh, we never were lacking in terms of executive support. We were ne never lacking in terms of uh, team member involvement because the, the thing that, Again, you can't just pontificate a success story. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to demonstrate through your improvement activities, whether you call it continuous improvement or you call it just a, um, a, a re reduction in, in uh, quality issues. Uh, the problem that we faced was it was uh, a common thread that existed with everybody, and that was, it was the process was broken and the process was being administered by people and what we had to be able to do is to get some way to be able to administer the changing the process and how do you do that mm -hmm. the kaizen work was outstanding because now you have people involved from every level in the organization to be able to identify and force rank some of the biggest problems you have to try to solve them well, and, you know, if you go back to, uh, you know, books of Taiichi Ono, you know, he always said, I think, pretty clearly, start from need. Uh, John Shook at the, uh, the Lean Enterprise Institute talks about, you know, the, the need to identify what problem are we trying to solve. Um, that that's, seems like a, a far more effective point, uh, starting point than saying, well, we're going to go implement these lean methods because, I mean, at some point, who cares, right? Well, it's exactly right because he... You can, and I've been in organizations where when you walk out, you have all kind of collateral from the standpoint of signage and sayings 
but it's, it's they're all dressed up, but they've achieved nothing. And that's the, the key is to be able to understand what am I trying to solve here through the involvement of everybody? And then the key is the sustainability. If I'm going to fix the problem, am I able to sustain it so it doesn't, there's no repeatability to that same issue later on? And that's where you instill the cultural change so people are they're cognizant of the fact that I'm not making the same kinds of mistakes I did, I did before. And I'm coaching myself, I'm coaching my, those that are with me to be good at what we do. So, and, and, and you know, and different organizations out there struggle with these um, different aspects of, of lean and TPS, and it might be hard to generalize, but, you know, here we are in 2016. Um, how would you describe the state of lean or the state of TPS in the U.S.? Um, how much progress are we making? What, what are the big challenges out there? I'm, I'm really still shocked over the fact that we're, we're having to face some of these challenges today in 2016 because the concepts, the, the books, all the uh, conventions, the conferences have been around for 25, 30 years. I mean, I, when I was in the, first got to the GM building in 1979, <clears throat> we were already talking about some of the, the Japanese practices. And so I'm trying to understand where, how is it we haven't been able to contemporize our our practices after 30 years that we're still saying, gee, what is some of this lean stuff? Give me a, a I've never heard of that. How do, what do I have to do? It's shocking that we don't have leaders who have tried to embrace it. And mm -hmm. maybe they feel it's a threat. Maybe they feel that it's, it's an investment that doesn't yield anything because, again, it's, uh, they see it as more uh, window dressing as opposed to an execution of a, of a change in the process. Well, I mean, I think, well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think they probably do see it as a threat when you when you I mean, I think the, the one challenge and I think this is always a, a difficult discussion to have, you know, with people in healthcare when you talk about the need for culture change and executives might at a high level talk about, oh, yeah, we want to change the culture. All right. Well, how do you define the problem? Like what what's broken with the existing culture? And, and people get far more uncomfortable with that discussion. And then I think there's the, re the recognition, um, you know, especially in healthcare, you, you have a lot of organizations where someone has been the CEO of that hospital for 20 or 25 years. They, I think at some point they start to say, well, uh, that reflects on me and they, they don't want to talk about that. Let, let's just go do some projects. Let's, let's, let's train and certify more belts. Like that, that's far less threatening than the reflection that comes with a discussion around, well, how, how are we changing the way we manage, right? Well, you know, it's interesting because that I think the healthcare industry has been one, particularly in, in the hospital side of the house. And then, you can, and of course, you can see it for every one of us that have experienced in a doctor's office about uh, maybe some time management issues that don't seem to be prevalent in their practice. But when I look at a hospital, and I've been in an emergency ward, I've been in and walk through the hall to see other people. And the one thing that you have in a hospital is every person in that hospital, as for the most part, is an independent business person. This nurse has this patient or these three patients or whatever it might be. This person who does blood, this person does uh, vital signs. Uh, and so you, in mass, it's almost impossible to measure the effectiveness of the hospital 
when everybody is an independent. So if you have a hospital that's got 500 employees and they're all doing individual things, uh, how do you assess their, well, the effect of that? And I think that's the challenge in the in the healthcare industry is yeah. because the, again, the, the maybe the best thing in the healthcare, healthcare industry is if if I'm a nurse and you're a patient, uh, the best thing I can do is not have you need me. Mm-hmm. Because you're, so I have dwell time. And so now, as you and I have grown up with value-added versus non-value-added time. Mm-hmm. And so now, how do, you, how do you put that in perspective when you're trying to measure the effectiveness, the utilization factor? And I think there's, there's two things, efficiency and utilization. Those are two mm-hmm. different things in, in, in manufacturing. It's very easy to measure. In the hospital, I find that very difficult because <clears throat> utilization just means that I'm, I, I'm on the clock. Mm-hmm. And so, but uh, of that time, if I'm eight hours on the clock, how much time am I actually doing effective work? Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, I think, is where the challenge is. Yeah, and well, you know what you mentioned with the doctor's office, and and I get faced with this as uh, a patient. I think what you describe as lack of time management. I think it's more of just a fundamental assumption that goes back a really long time in healthcare that says it's okay to make the patient wait because the focus is on keeping the doctor one hundred percent utilized, which you know then leads to a lot. It leads to poor flow and. Uh, and I think, you know, there are some organizations that through lean and healthcare, they're discovering that that's that's not right. It's not respectful to the patient um, for us to always be behind schedule. We need to improve our processes, improve our flow and, 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 and focus on that sometimes more so than the individual efficiency um, of, of individuals. And, and, you know, the, and the one thing that I, I, I've never been asked in the medical profession is, about customer satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you go into di- in multiple doctor's offices, and, and, and I've been in there where I've seen 15 or 20 people sitting there in a the waiting room, you know, you'll ask the question, how are we doing in time? Is the doctor, you know, I'm here for my 9 o'clock appointment, and da, da, da. how are we running? Well, we're running about 45 minutes behind. Well, ask me to fill out a customer survey at that yep. point in time, but you typically don't get that because they're going to say that's, their business is. I, yeah, I know. I, I blogged about this about a year ago. You know, I've never been once asked to do sort of a, a simple plus delta at the end of a uh, office visit. What went well? What could have been better? They just they, they never ask. And I mean, uh, I've I've complained uh, to doctors' offices where I've been a patient, and yeah, that just doesn't really lead to anything constructive. But. Um, you're talking about the independent functions. You know, as hospitals are, are as siloed uh, as as uh, as anything in terms of functions and departments. But then you you do have the unique complicating factor that more often than not, the doctors are not employees of the hospital. They literally are paid based on different criteria, and that criteria doesn't necessarily involve. Uh, even this is changing a little bit. You know, how do we keep people out of the hospital instead of just treating them more efficiently once they're there? Mm-hmm. Um, so is, we'll kind of start wrapping up a little bit here. Um, and I, I appreciate you being so generous with your time here. Um, what advice do you have for those? Like you said, there are still people who are very new to lean, 
Um, what, what advice do you have for them if they're getting started? Well, there's, there's two pieces of it, which I, which I think the most important is if, if I'm all of a sudden in a chair or given the responsibility, I think I, to, to implement lean, or if I'm a, somebody who's on contract to go help them, the first thing that I think I need to do or anybody else does, and that is to assess the, the organization's what I call readiness for change. Is mm-hmm. there a culture within that organization that will be receptive to change? And I think at that point in time, you have to talk about the changes that have taken place historically within an organization, whether it's organization structure, whether it's uh, personnel uh, movements, or whatever it might be. What are those challenges that they've faced in the past that they've been very effective at being able to manage? And then it comes down to that, to who is responsible for the success of the change process. You have to have that person who can carry that yard arm and lead that charge up the hill. I've always categorized there's only two types of leaders in the world. One that uh, orders the charge up the hill and one that leads the charge up the hill. <laughs> Organization where somebody is going to lead that charge up the hill. And I think if you can look at the, the, the cultural readiness and the individual, you have a, an opportunity to be successful. But at that point in time, then you can start laying the plan in place to be able to say, what are we going to do? Now, the hard part is you can't change an organization that's got 1,000 or 10,000 people all at one time, whatever it might be. So it's like eating the elephant, right, one bite at a time. But where can you make the most impressionable impact upon an organization through change. And you do that through a well-executed plan, through something that has been endorsed and approved by everyone in the organization from the top down, and then slowly start to make that change and use the success story as the one that will be the fodder for the next uh, effort. And so, you know, when you talk about uh, leading that charge, and, and I'm just thinking back earlier when you talked about not wanting to be the lone commando thrown into uh, one of the other GM factories. Uh, I, I run across, I, I talk to a lot of people in healthcare who had great experience in, in manufacturing or maybe even at another, you know, at this point, people who have experience with lean and other healthcare organizations. And, you know, they, they get hired in as, you know, a director of continuous improvement. And, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear the, the, the term lone wolf or, you know, think of like the lone commando. And, and they, they really struggle because I, I think somehow their organizations have misunderstood to think, well, if, if I, I hire that person, they're going to make me lean um, because they're not. It's not like they're more ordering the charge up the hill and they've appointed somebody who I think more often than not, not their fault as individuals. They're not the right person. They're not capable of leading that charge up the hill. Yeah, and I, I think that the important thing, and you, you would can attest to this as well as anybody, is you know, if you're going to stand up in front of a group of uh, senior executives or mid-level executives or even a, a group of team members, um, what image do, are you going to project is the first thing that you say? Because they're gonna, everybody's going to look at us with a, uh, a suspicion. You know, it's like, what, do you bring, what, what can you tell me or give me that I don't already know? And I think the important thing is to establish some credibility immediately when we come out of the gate, because the the one thing you only get one chance to, to be successful at this, yeah. And it, it has to be done with a lot of uh, 
I think, merit to where what you bring to the the organization and what changes, but you're also going to attest to the fact that you can't do it alone. It's like you know you can have the best quarterback in the world, but if you got ten other guys that can't do it, uh, I don't care. It's not going to work. So you have to have a team, and they're all, as I said before, you're all going to play out of the same playbook. And maybe as a final question here, I mean, we talk about. I mean, there's a lot of things that that could go wrong. Uh, what what's the risk of um, a poorly executed lean initiative. I guess is it that is it that comment you made about you know you only get one chance to be successful at this, or, or can you maybe elaborate more on what those risks or, or some examples of what you've seen as a poorly executed lean initiative? I think the risk again, if you're trying to mobilize, rally everyone around the flag, we have to be very careful that. It's not perceived to be another fashionable start because once you have something that people believe in and they subscribe to it, they will get behind it as long as the influence and the leadership in the uh, communication is done whereby people are seeing the change process. The risk is if all of a sudden it, it is not embraced and not led by others, People will all of a sudden just go back to, I'm leaving my brains on the fence post out, outside. I'm coming in. I'm going to hit the clock at 6 in the morning. I'm leaving at 3 o'clock, and I can care less about what goes on with this business as long as my job is protected. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that's that whole annuity thing I talked about before. You're trying to build people that esprit de corps, and I think that's what a good lean program does. It creates an esprit de corps that everybody will pontificate the fact that, this is really good for us, and we're doing very well. And uh, I'm comfortable about where my future is and uh, where this company is going to be. And what would you say? Um, I mean, what is there? Uh, what's the most common failure mode to, to these different lean initiatives that struggle? Is it is it that factor of not having the right leader, not having the readiness to change at the organization level? I think that. An executable plan. Here again, uh, we can publish anything we want. We can hang banners. We can do whatever we want. But there has to be something that holds the team, the individual, and the organization accountable for this this path that we're on. And it has to have the ability to be able to to do a pulse check every step of the way to be sure that we're on target. It it is one of those things that I. Uh, I've always been comfortable with as far as being able to do the broadcasting, but I'm uncomfortable with the fact that uh, too often it's done as a publicity stunt or it's done something because it's the flavor of the day. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's been a lot of that, whether you know it was uh, TQM, uh, Six Sigma, other methodologies. Uh, yeah, that's that's a big challenge in a lot of settings. And, you know, and people in healthcare, unfortunately, they they put their guard up. They hear about something new, and I, I've had people quite literally after you know a short short period of time where they start seeing the possibility with lean. They're excited about being able to make uh, things run better, and they ask, well, you know, and they'll ask, how how do we know our leadership serious about it this time? Like I can't yeah, guarantee that, but you need to talk to them about that. Yeah, and I think that that's, that every leader 
And it's, it's interesting that uh, everywhere I've gone, uh, I found those that uh, are dressed to the T and um, have uh, highly respected in every word that comes out of their mouth, but it's more of an image as opposed to one who is who can demonstrate leadership. Mm. And I, I think that the, the leader has to be the one who has to have the visibility within the organization, whether it's the communication process through monthly uh, uh, sessions with the, the teams or on a podcast or, or videotapes, anything. The leader, no matter what level, has to be recognized as the one that he, is, he or she is behind this. And uh, it, it, it's not uh, something that's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mandatory. Well, Steve, um, thank you so much for you know, taking, taking time to have a, a great discussion here, a two-part podcast. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, I really appreciate you sharing your, your experiences and, and reflections. Um, do, do you have any final thought that you might want to uh, leave the listeners with? The, the only thing that I would look at now is, uh, and I am asking myself this question even today, uh, if it's not lean, what, what should it be? What, what's next? Or what, what, what's in our toolkit? doesn't matter whether you're healthcare or manufacturing uh, or high tech, but what have you got in your toolkit that you can take out that's going to ensure that you have optimized business performance in terms of operations, in terms of customer service, in terms of delivery, and customer satisfaction? That's a great question because I, I think for, for those in healthcare who say lean, uh, those who still want to make the argument lean does not apply to healthcare. That's a great question. What what do they propose other than more of the same and more money and 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 things that we don't have here in the U.S. or in other countries? So, great yep. question. Maybe people can, can <laughs> people listening to the podcast probably kind of self selecting group of uh, believing that lean is that way regardless of of their setting. But I would love to hear from people if uh, if they know how others would maybe answer that question. Um, but again, our, our guest here today has been uh, Steve Barra. Um, thank you so much for being with us here today. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.